So, Anthony, I know we've done this before, but still, like, can you introduce yourself about, like, why you started to be a physical therapist and the whole process from started at the beginning and how did it how did it end up like right now in the NBA? Yeah, sure. So I, I really feel like I started as a, as a strength coach before I went into to the, the medical side of things, actually. So I still, you know, I'm still strength coach at heart. I still try to, you know, try to fight my way into our strength coach meetings with the Wizards, but they always shut the door on me and kick me back to the training room. But uh, I'm, st I'm still trying to get my keep my strength coach card um, active. But, you know, so I, I, I started really kind of a really common story, I feel like, for a lot of strength conditioning coaches where you're just like just kind of a very average athlete who was you know underpowered small had to kind of get where i was going by working harder and starting to working smarter than people so um for me i got really obsessed with just the idea that you know training harder and doing things could create adaptations that make me better at my sport and i can change my physiology through training and then if i can train smarter i can be more effective at changing my physiology so um I think for me, it was something where I started seeing how these training variables could ch ch physically change my structure and change my performance. Um, that was a, that was a big deal for me. And around that same time, I was finding myself really interested in, you know, biology and anatomy and school and getting drawn towards that. So I, I really got pulled to this, you know, exercise physiology world and thought I wanted to be, you know, more of a exercise physiology researcher. Um, I, I just remember I was watching those Gatorade commercials when I was growing up and there was this, you know, commercials where you know person's just like on doing a VO2 max test on a bike and just stripping, you know, uh, cool blue Gatorade out of their pores. And there's the first in the lab coat. Like I thought I wanted to be the researcher doing those tests, but I quickly found once I went to school that that, that wasn't for me to be in the lab and I was more meant to be in the weight room. So um, now really around the, the end of my sport career, I started realizing that, you know, I was less interested about myself as I was kind of the dynamics of the team. And that got me really interested in, in coaching and how I can impact, you know, different people through that skill set. And I had some, you know, just phenomenal. So I think some of my biggest mentors in life have always been my coaches and people I still keep in contact with and are mentors to me or my, my coaches when I was, was younger. So um, I think that model in my head of, you know, integrating my love for human physiology and training with the impact a coach can make is something that, that moved me forward there. So um, I ended up going to college at a, a school called the University of Dayton in Ohio. And I was lucky to um, kind of get involved in our student recreation center, started doing like more group fitness, personal training based stuff, and then realized I wanted to be in the weight room with the athletes. So I started volunteering um, with our D1 program and was fortunate to, to get a student assistant job there for the rest of my time at school, which was amazing to kind of have that be my campus job to go in and, you know, work with the volleyball team and work with the soccer team and do those things. So we were a small enough school and a small enough athletic program that, um, we had one strength coach for, you know, 14 D1 programs. So they needed uh, student assistance to, to help. So it was a really good arrangement for me to be able to get that hands-on experience quickly. Um, during that time as well, I got to do some really great internships uh, at a place called Don Scott Strength Conditioning. And then I went to Boston to Mike Boyle Strength Conditioning um, and just really started to get involved with, you know, some really, really intelligent people that, that motivated me to keep pushing and, and being better. Um, really then 
after that boil internship and around my senior year of college, I, I started realizing that like I was getting really interested in, in more of the, you know, medical side of things, more of the, uh, you know, rehab side, more of the intricate, say call them like motor control activities or positional activities and stuff like that. And that was, I was realizing a lot of my interest was, was going towards that. And I kind of felt like if I didn't go down that path to, to go be a physical therapist, it was going to kind of have an itch I couldn't scratch. Um, so I decided to, to venture towards physical therapy school, um, almost took a job in minor league baseball along the way as a strength coach and kind of realized that wasn't, you know, the right path for me. So felt like everything was kind of trying to pull me away and keep me on the strength coach path. But, um, a lot of my good mentors and my gut was telling me to, to go to school and, um, and do that additional training. And, and I'm really glad I did because, uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to emerge, you know, the, the medical side, um, the in-depth injury physiology mechanisms, um, manual therapy and just all those things we can do to modify movement and, and healing um, with the training side. And, and where I feel this merges really well is where I'm really passionate about is this, is this return to play process because it really is this interface where um, the, the medical meets training. And in a lot of places, like I feel medical practitioners aren't necessarily equipped to to handle the you know, mid and end phases of rehab because it's, it's not something that's stressed in school. It's something that I learned in the weight room at Dayton. It's something I learned at Mike Boyle's. It's something I learned early on in the process um, and have continued to cultivate, um, but now have the context of the medical side. And it's something where I feel strength conditioning coaches don't always feel comfortable working in those middle phases or feel somewhat constrained or hand tied sometimes by the, by the medical side. So I'm really passionate about trying to, merge those sides to, to integrate the processes better and, you know, doing it through a team approach and get everybody working together and looking at the same criteria and understanding where they fit and, and how this process needs to be to make us, you know, to, to make people more robust coming out of coming out of it. So um, that's really my story. So I, I came out of school and I took a job um, at a clinic that was just starting up in, in Maryland outside of DC called uh, rehab to perform. Um, it was a, just a, a we had, you know, it was just one clinic, a couple of clinicians uh, at the time when I was a student there and then came back. And then it's, it, I think they're now up to eight clinics. So the clinic's grown. So I was able to come back and, and grow with that company and, and um, to learn that side of things and get a lot of really good clinical experience around some really great people. Um, while we were there, we decided we were all really passionate about this integration of performance and rehab um, as the name we had to perform. And then um, we wanted to kind of help to, to educate and fill some of that void on, you know, how strength coaches and how medical practitioners are talking to interacting in this process and filling in some of these um, quote unquote gaps. So that's why we started our company, uh, R2P Academy to help providing some uh, continued education for, for rehab providers and strength conditioning coaches uh, to help to just increase the framework, increase the understanding and principles and methodology for, for re return to play processes. So I've been uh, lucky to continue doing that as I, started working with the Washington Wizards um, and the NBA. So I just finished my second season uh, with them and I've just been, you know, beyond blessed to have the opportunity to, to be around great people. And I think continue to be challenged daily and in different ways to, to grow as a professional and try to, you know, solve some of these hard to solve questions. Nice. Nice. So this time I'll, Last time we focused on hamstring. This uh, this time I kind of want to focus on ACL injury. So, the first 
the first question is like, uh, there's like two ligaments for like ACL and PCL. Why is it the conversation conversation mostly about ACL instead of like both of them? Yeah, so I think the the strength of the ligament, the ACL is is not as strong as the PCL. And then additionally, the the mechanism of injury for an ACL is it's a more common pattern than a PC than a PCL would be. So your ACL is going to be more of your, your plant and twist mechanism where this tibia comes forward on the, on the femur with rotation. So that's what's going to stress the ACL. That's that primary restraint. So in athletics, we need to get in that position. That's a position of 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 change of direction. That's a position of exhibiting, you know, you know agility, all of those things. We need to be able to get in and out of those positions to be able to accelerate, decelerate, to avoid a defender, to be able to absorb force, you know, as we land to decelerate. So that that ACL needs to be compliant to the point where that translation has to be able to occur. We can't just stop that translation and lock it because we lose what makes us human and what makes us be able to maneuver and move with that. So what is our, you know, superpower and ability to do that becomes, you know, an inherent weakness if we start pushing this thing over and over again. Um, the PCL mechanism is more of this hyperextension, tibia coming posterior. So you typically need a, a trauma mechanism for that. So typical sports mechanism you're going to see is like wide receiver uh, catching the ball on the sideline on their tippy toes and someone comes and hits them. Um, anterior to posterior on the knee or non-sport wise they call it like a dashboard injury where in a car accident the dashboard will come and hit anterior to posterior on the knee uh, to create that injury so uh, mechanistically and then structurally they're 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 a bit different um the, the moments that the joint's going to have to do the position of the joint's going to have to do what makes uh, one more vulnerable than the other nice so um like like you mentioned kind of walk kind of want to like dive a little bit deeper about like uh why exactly does like ACL injury happens and um like the famous Derek Rose <laughs> happens to a lot of times so why exactly do like 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 hamstring is probably mostly or uh track guys or track athletes gonna suffer from uh major or like big hamstring injury, but uh, for ACL, is it more like teams or athlete because there's a lot of like change of direction or a lot of like landing that's that this kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure, it's it's going to be more of those dynamic change of direction, landing, plant twist mechanisms. So, I mean, things we're seeing these in is like, I mean, if you want to see the highest volume, look at like like a high school age girls soccer. Like there seems to be a you know rampant amount basketball you see a lot of acls um american football you see a lot of acls so uh these like i said these plant twist mechanisms these decelerate or accelerative rotary type things um seem is that the main mechanism for this injury because like we said it's this rotational element and this, this tibia sliding anterior um about the the femur that's going to put the the acl under tension and stress here. So, um, again, it's something where we start talking about what the, the role of a ligament is. So the role of a ligament is to, you know, number one, to constrain that motion to not go too far. Right. So as we see, if it goes too far, um, 
the uh, it, it will rupture. But really, what a, a ligament does as well is it provides proprioceptive input. So it's kind of this supercomputer, microcomputer that when it changes it changes length, it's telling the body where we are in space. It's telling the body what to fire and when. So it's a communication device. So when we start having these, you know, mechanisms where I need to have these fine coordinated movements and the muscles need to fire at the right time at the right place, like the, the ligaments are something that are communicating that up the chain. So the more I do these movements, the more I do them at higher and higher speed and the velocities, um, the less prepared I may be for them, the less I'm able to kind of manage the pressure and then manage the, the forces applied and then manage the rhythm between the, the femur and the tibia. Um, the more chances I have of getting outside of the bandwidth where this thing can, can protect me or just mistiming something. And these injuries happen so fast. Like the mechanism, some people will say that the mechanism is decided, meaning that the injury is already determined to happen before the foot even hits the ground. So if you're talking about why do they occur or the risk involved, some people would make an argument that like it's situational. You just put yourself in situations where the body's not going to be able to withstand this thing, or you haven't built up the resilience to do this, or it's just a wrong place, right, wrong time, wrong situation type injury. So if you start talking about why this might happen to more people than others, it might be something where if we start looking at, you know, we mentioned like female soccer, a uh, girl soccer. So we start looking at more laxity. Maybe we start talking about the Q angle, so wider pelvis. Um, so we start talking about angles. So now am I able to, to control pressure as well? Am I able to control rotation as well because of the, the angle of orientation of the muscles, um, the way the, the, the joints oriented? Um, so does that change my, my integration with the ground and my ability to, to, to control, to create pressure and create force at the right time? Um, now I might be having something too where just for a female, we might have a little more laxity, so it might lead to more relative motion between the joints. And that's something we see in a risk factor is that people that have greater anterior posterior displacement just at rest seem to be at greater risk than those that, that have less. So people that have more joint place seem to be at more at more risk, which would make sense. Um, people that have knee hyperextension. So again, coming back to this laxity seems to be something that might be indicated. So there might be these these issues where there's just general, you know, predisposing factors for the way that somebody's built or the way they move or their movement signature. There might be things that are related to the actual amount of dynamic ability a person has. So you brought up Derek Rose. Um, Derek Rose is someone who's just so dynamic. And if you look at him coming, you know, just coming down the lane with such force and landing in the way, like you just think of the current risk of how many times you're going to do that. What are the odds? The odds are going to be greater uh, for him, then for me playing an old men's league where I stay outside of the three-point arc and, you know, <laughs> don't put myself in risk, right? So that's that's some of those those variables, right? Um, that, that interplay here, I think additionally, we look at other uh, movement things you see in the literature, like you see people talk about higher degrees of, of you know, knee abduction moments um, and angles. Um, you see that the ground reaction forces during jumping that are implicated. So there's all this biomechanical minutia we can interplay to see what produces more risk. But at the end of the day, like we said, wrong place, wrong time, wrong timing, wrong preparation, 
wrong predisposing just individual factors and then wrong ability to manage the force that's going to be that's going to be imposed upon you um, seems to create this perfect storm that you know creates that one-shot incident nice so um for for uh last time we talked about hamstring there's like three degrees of like uh they grade into three de- three grades and four grades of like hamstring injury so for ACL, ACL injury, is it like uh, you torn the ACL or is it, can you grade it or they're just like torn it or not? Yeah, typically it's like, I mean, partial tear, full tear. Yeah. Um, and then there's going to be other things involved. So like, um, so again, like really, if you're looking at that as a, like a partial or a full, um, you might start having conversations about surgical decision-making typically in a high level sport, they're both going to be repaired because there's going to be dysfunction, whether they're partial or full. Um, if it's someone like me, if I partially tore my ACL and I'm not a you know competing athlete and I have function, I might consider, you know, conservatively rehabbing that thing, or there's athletes who are copers and who do rehab these things without surgery. So th- th- that would matter, I, I suppose. Um, partial versus full. I think the bigger distinctions are probably other involved structures. So meaning like, did I also injure the MCL? Um, did I also injure the meniscus? So is there other repairs that needed to be done or other, other structures that were injured in the same mechanism that might change the healing timeframe or change what they have to do surgically, which would change the restrictions post-surgically, which might change my rehab timeline so for instance like if i if they have to it's common to see a meniscus injury with the acl and if they have to reconstruct the meniscus um that's something where someone is going to be in a in a brace restricting their their motion for quite a while so you might not be able to get them you know doing the things you'd be doing at eight weeks um with a non-meniscus because they're there's still been restricted from a protocol standpoint, from a weight bearing and then a bracing standpoint. So it can certainly delay the process. Well, so uh, one thing that, that has a major difference from, uh, from a strength coach side of side of side to look at like hashing and ACL is the return, the timing or the timeline for return to play like hamstring injury. They're probably not going to be, uh, days, weeks, or months, months or two. But uh, for ACL, most of the athletes, are gonna, they're going to need probably a year to go back to the court to be able to, like, play at the same level again. Probably not at the... So why why does it take longer? So there's a couple of variables. So number one, like, you're dealing with a, a different tissue, um, that has different demands. Um, and then you're dealing with the surgical procedure that needs time to be able to integrate it back with the body. So I think we can look to two places here. We can look like, let's crudely call it like hardware versus software. So in a hamstring injury, like the, the hardware is going to heal faster. It's muscular tissue. Um, it, you know, that's going to heal quickly. There's good blood supply. Um, and the body's going to fill that gap relatively fast. And also that tissue, there's, there's enough surface area and enough stuff going on that the body's actually pretty good about working around those issues. So if I have a certain area of, 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 of a lesion of a hamstring, 
the body's good at rerouting that force and getting around that versus you just have one ACL. Like, and that it's pretty pivotal. So when we start talking about the the return from a hamstring is number one is like, you actually need the structural healing times. You need time for um, the graft to actually set in and be stable. Um, you need time in which um, the graft heals and adapts. So what you actually see is like, they're using for an ACL surgery, they're using um, typically a, a patellar tendon or a hamstring tendon as the graft. So we're taking a tendon and using it as a ligament. So tendons and ligaments are, are structurally different. So what we see is this process called ligamentization where the tendon over time will actually change to structurally look like a ligament. So you're literally physically teaching this tissue how to be something it's not. And that takes, that takes time for that to happen. So from a hardware standpoint, the surgery has to set in, things have to heal around it. From a software standpoint, as I mentioned before, that ligament is like a supercomputer, right? So if I just remove that computer and I just put a new one in, now it needs to relearn all of that communication. So now my timing, my coordination, my rhythm is going to be off. Additionally, what we see after a ham after a, a ACL injury is we see a massive downregulation in quadriceps strength. And just like I talked about um, in the hamstring, how the muscle the muscle tightens up and the muscle spindle will get more sensitive, the body will create this protective mechanism because the quadriceps producing torque will actually anteriorly shear the tibia about the femur. So that's the mechanism that stresses the ACL. So the body says, mm, I don't want to give you the ability to do the thing that's going to stress the tissue that's healing. So I'm going to just turn the volume down this thing. So it takes time for that strength to come back. You'll see impairments and, you know, massive deficits in strength still at six, seven, eight months, if not longer post-injury at times. Um, so it takes time for the body to, to give access back to that, that strength back. It takes time for us to train our, you know, ligament supercomputer to understand the patterns and the rhythms of all that stuff. So um, it's it's a more intricate process for sure. But that being said, like you, I'm really happy to hear you say in one year because I think that's become more well known. When I came out of school, um, the sentiment from a lot of the orthos that I've talked to and worked with was, and the, the expectation for the athletes coming in was six months. And that's something that was common. That's something that we commonly were returning people at six months. And you're looking at some of the literature coming out and pressing more and people being more firm saying like, no, this takes, this takes a year. So, and again, we might be getting into some of this conversation we had about returning a high level sprinter versus returning a quartzford athlete from a hamstring. So is there a difference between returning a recreational basketball player back after six months to play, you know, slow speed game where, like I said, old man league, I'm behind the arc. Like what's my risk variables versus returning Derek Rose after six months. There's a difference, right? There's a difference in demand, right? Am I driving my car at 10 miles an hour? Or am I going to drive and test my brakes at, you know, 110 miles an hour? So there's a difference there. So what level of athlete are you working with? What, how big of an engine are you working with? What are the demands are coming back to? So you'll look at stuff and like you said, I think a year is probably the typical timeline you'll see people expecting now, but 
you'll see people like Tim Hewitt, who's one of the more respected, one of, probably the most respected researcher in ACL world, saying that questioning, like, should it be two years? Because you do see def- you see deficits that are persisting up to two years. You see difference in, in the girth of the muscle up to two years. Um, you see, and just from a performance perspective, you can see, don't really, ex- you can expect people to come back in a year, but you, you don't expect them to be back to themselves or back to their peak performance for two years. So there's still question marks on, you know, are we going to mitigate risk earlier if we go or mitigate risk more if we wait a longer period of time? But again, it comes down to what we talked about before. It's this N equals one context. What is the criteria? What is this person actually achieving? What has the rehab process been? Um, and what do they need to be doing? And how ready are they for that? And then what's the individual context for this person? Is it their you know, is it their senior year of college and they just want to play this one more year, before, you know, so they're willing to take the risk is, you know, someone pushing for, you know, a championship is someone pushing for a new contract, like all that stuff matters for what risk someone's going to be willing to take outside of just trying to put someone in a bubble and protect them as much as you can. So it, it all comes down to the, the situation in front of you and making the best decision for how someone's functionally representing along with, their desires and the needs they have from a personal professional standpoint. Nice. So, uh, uh, like a few years ago, I worked with one, like there's one of my athletes, he's played in like the, uh, professional league in Taiwan. And he came back from a full tear of ACL injury for like four months. I was like, I was like, I was shocked and like, and I'm like, why, why did, why did you have to rush? And he answered me that the coaches want him to play for the championship. And, and then after like a few weeks of discussing this with the athlete, I talked with Adam who works with the Phoenix Sun, Phoenix Suns. I think he's their a physical therapist mm-hmm. and he told me yeah. that he told me that for ACL for an athlete to like go, gonna return to play it's probably gonna take longer than a year like you mentioned longer than a year probably two years or something like that so I'm I'm gonna give a shout out to Adam but still wanna go a little bit deeper about like uh the return to play process or rehab process so um how exactly, or like, uh, is it is the rehab process gonna be, how? Sorry, how is the rehab process gonna be different with uh like hamstring strain? So, and when when are you gonna introduce like plyo or like speed elements into like their process? Sure. Yeah. So I, I when we start looking at any rehab process, I think what's important to do is number one is to reverse engineer the terminal task. So what are we trying to get back to? What are the demands of the sport that we're trying to get back to? And then we start from where we are. So with a hamstring strain or with an ACL, ACL, we're going to have physical constraints, meaning what's the the damage on the body and how long is that going to take? Our understanding of how long that's going to take to actually change and adapt. And then based off that, what can we do that's not going to affect that timeline or what we can do that might help that timeline of that thing healing. Um, 
and as I mentioned earlier, that timeline is just going to be very much different for an ACL than a hamstring because we're not going to be able to do as much around those initial constraints because they're going to be larger. And then additionally, the risk of doing things is going to be higher than a hamstring strain because we have less ability to, I guess, quote unquote, get around, get around the issue um, in a way that's going to move things forward. So the way we talked about accelerating and doing early accelerations in a hamstring that can be getting us through a sprint pattern when your knee can't flex and extend, there's not, there's not a lot of things we want to be doing at that time. Additionally, if we start looking at the timelines of understanding, like if I know I have a year for this process versus I know with a hamstring, I might need to be pushing this person to be back in a week to two weeks, depending on, you know, the demands of the individual, like the, not that the every day doesn't matter, but the amount of, the amount of preparation I have, the amount of runway I have to get you ready for the demand is much shorter day by day. So the plan extends way out. So your your blocks get your your block sizes and the amount that you're you're going to do will, will change and adapt. So though the principles are the same and the fact that you're, you know, I want to restore range of motion, I want to restore coordination of movement, I want to restore force producing capability, I want to restore the ability to produce energy or your energy system capacity. I want to gradually expose them to the demands of the of the sport and i want to help modify their psychological factors or give them optimism and belief that they can do what they need to do though i'm going to be addressing those things no matter what the injury is how long i might spend or the, the time you might need on certain things or the the limitations you have from a protocol standpoint or from a risk standpoint for imposing certain demands might take longer so in the acl process it's it's we're going to be looking initially to, you know, promote healing to get them back to a general homeostasis where um, life's affected. They can't, they can't walk well. They might be, they're, they're on crutches for a bit of time. We have to really reteach this person how to, how to walk. Um, we have to, to fight to get back. For Additionally, Additionally, as I mentioned, this this quadricep will downregulate where now it's not strong enough to even support me in standing. So we have to retrain all of this this timing as well. So it's a more intricate process in this in this early phase. Um, and again, there's going to be restrictions from a surgical standpoint that we're not going to want to do certain things because it might actually impair the ability for the graft to, to set in as well as it as as well as it should. It might affect the healing. It might make you know um, make it less likely that the, the graft is going to heal right, and and you know make a maybe need a, a, a surgical revision if we do things inappropriately, which is the last thing you want to do. So you need to be more conservative in that process. That being said, we can start looking at the big picture and start understanding what things can we stress and what things can we do to help things be easier down the road or set us up for success later on. Um, as we start getting into um, our, I guess, our middle phases where we restore our, our general activities of daily living, we really can now start looking from a strength conditioning lens and understanding how do we need to physically prepare this person. So and this is where we talked about this reverse engineering process where I'm going to start looking at all the patterns I'm going to be using throughout the entire rehab. And I'm going to start doing this early. We're going to start working on marching, side marching um, early on to start promoting those patterns we're going to be using 
from a locomotor standpoint. Like I said, this muscle's like, or that ligament's like a supercomputer. So I better start training it in the patterns I wanted to train and the timing and the rhythm that we're going to be executing in sport. So really from, you know, week two, week three, we can start some of this low level marching in a typical ACL all the way to their warm up when they're a year out, those patterns should just start, you know, slowly titrating in force. So that march, as it picks up speed, turns into a skip. That skip, you know, turns into a power skip. That skipping turns into a, a low knee run, which which coordinates higher and higher until it turns into a running motion, right? So we scaled these things over time where rather than looking from a step-by-step progression where, oh, okay, you're three months out, we can start running now. It's, well, can we just actually slowly turn that dial up slower and slower or just a little bit every day to the point where, one day bleeds into the next and one phase bleeds into the next where you don't really even notice the change because we've been slowly just adapting you over time. Um, and we're doing that the, the whole process. So again, like we might be doing those low level skips, which is introduction to plyometrics. We might be doing just slow controlled like snap downs. We're actually teaching them to slowly load into a landing position and doing that early and eventually just speeding up that rate to the point where now we're snapping down to working on, you know, eccentric velocity. Um, we might be working on, you know, low level jumping tasks for using band assistance for like a pogo to unweight the individual. So that can actually start exhibiting some of the, some of the stuff they would need for jumping. We might be working on, you know, a fast rise from a squat to actually exhibit some of that power you need concentrically for a jump. So we could be training jumping without jumping. We can be training landing without landing so that now when we start doing these things at a low level, it's just a small jump rather than a big jump. And those days just stack on top of each other to the point where you're making small changes over time to the point where you're, you know, exhibiting the terminal task. Great. Great. I love this. So uh, when it comes to like ACL injury, uh, there's like uh, some some video or like some coaches going to discuss this on Instagram about like the way athletes land. And there's going to say that I'm great. I'm going to bring up his name again. There's going to say that D-Rose has bad landing posture, that kind of stuff. But if you see like tons of like, uh, if you see, really see the basketball game play, there's tons of like athletes gonna have to like lay up or dunk the ball and landing on one leg and we're landing weirdly but they're like they're not getting injured or so is there a way to like uh teach the or is it really possible to like teach your athlete how to land so they can like land the right way when they're on the when they're playing the game or is it, or is it our job to like do certain things to like, prove or let them get stronger at that kind of position? I noticed this is a. <laughs> no, it's a great question. We could, you know, spend a lot of time here deliberating because there's not a concrete answer, right? And there's going to be a lot of different opinions on these things. So, I would say when we start looking at a complex sport and looking at right or wrong, like situations are going to happen where I'm getting hit in the air and I have to land weird and, and things are, like we said, right 
wrong place, wrong time, wrong timing, wrong position. All those things are going to happen where, like we said, the mechanism might decide itself before the foot even hits the ground. So you can look at the conversation from two points of like, am I training someone to be as resilient to those positions and those vulnerable places as possible? So if I built up their coordinative software to where they can actually, you know, stabilize and coordinate movement in variable positions well enough that they might be able to withstand certain perturbations or certain variable exposures. And if I build up their tissue integrity well enough that they can handle the stress and strain that might be imposed from the, the dynamic demands of sport. So I think when you start talking about the conversation of like landing right and wrong, like, like we mentioned earlier, there's certain patterns that we can look that over the large scale data might be representative of increased risk. So if we see these patterns emerge, it might pique our interest to say, oh, I don't know if, if I'm just putting someone in a low level or just like a, I guess, less demanding, just closed jumping task on a force plate or just on a camera analysis where they're not in the dynamic of the sport and their body is using this certain strategy to land that might be putting, you know, the ACL under more duress that might be creating more translation. Now I'm concerned that maybe that pattern will emerge more frequently, which might increase my exposure risk. Or if that pattern's emerging under simple and I start amplifying the forces and amplifying the intensity, am I now more concerned for the risk there? So the question here is if I can change it in a constrained setting, does that carry over to sport? Hard to say. Different arguments from different people, right? But certainly I think we, we need to be able to give people the capacity and capability to express those in a controlled manner and then teach them to coordinate it and then um, ideally, the body will, will choose that as a more optimal pattern and will exhibit it in, in sport. And again, we can teach this to a degree. We can teach this, and I think an optimal return to play process is going to integrate court movement. It's going to be using the table, the weight room, to facilitate how someone is moving and presenting the court, whether by modifying constraints, whether it be oh, their quads not strong enough or they're not able to bend the knee. So now they only can choose certain options of the court. So if I reduce that constraint and train them to use it, now they have more options to get in different positions on the court. Or it's something where we're actually putting them and constraining them um, to figure out different movement solutions that might be closer to their baseline or more optimal from a performance or from a movement efficiency standpoint. So it comes down to, to I think it's this, this constraint led approach for motor learning that kind of lead us to, you know, things we can utilize in the weight room, things we can utilize on the court to actually help to change someone's strategy for movement and have the, the different, showing them there's different options to solve a problem. And this is the kind of things that can bleed into actually decision-making and automatic, you know, subconscious decision-making on the court if, if repeated over time. Um, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's, it's skill development, right? If we can change the way that someone is, you know, strategically moving or executing in game, that can, that can change the movement pattern as well. So all this stuff interplays, but I think at the end of the day, we have to reduce the constraints because if they don't have the options to do something, they're not going to choose to do it. 
the way I think about it is like if you're playing like the game Scrabble, right? If I only have, you know, so many letters available for me, I can only spell so many words. So if I'm only working half the alphabet, I can't spell certain words. I can't put certain sentences together. So the first job in a rehab is to identify what letters are they missing due to the injury? What letters might they have been missing before the injury? Can I give them those letters back? teach them how to coordinate those those letters into words and sentences par- and paragraphs into and in more and more complex scenarios under higher and higher demands and then allow them to execute them on the court in the way they know how to and the way their coaches want them to implement it as an athlete. Nice. So uh, I'm glad that you brought up like force play testing. So uh, I know on your Instagram and uh, you mentioned that uh, return to play for like single leg jump and uh, double leg jump on the force play testing. So, what are your thoughts on like these two different for like uh for ACL injury? Uh, so you're saying looking at looking at force play testing for ACL? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think it's definitely useful because what the force plates can do is they can they can uh give us a, a objective indicator as to how, how much how much force they're putting through each limb. So um, it can tell us as we go through the process how the athlete is strategically deciding to use that limb. So we can tell how they're doing it from a loading perspective and an unloading perspective. And using a dual force plate, we can look at the asymmetry from side to side. So what we'll see in some in some of the literature, and I think some of the excellent work done by um, guys like Matt Jordan, who I saw you've had on your, your podcast, um, you see typical patterns in, in ACL. You see typical, um, so, I mean, Matt's work is amazing because he has such a large cohort of, of, of ski jumpers who have, have torn their ACL. So he can see these patterns over time. And um, I used that quote in the last, when we talked about hamstring about understanding large scale averages in the specific context of an individual, like you can see that large scale context and how these things will repeat over and over and over again, because the constraints are similar across ACLs. So it gives us an expectation of progression. It gives an expectation of what the constraints are and, and the process we have to have to lift those and how to identify if those constraints were lifted or not. And the force plate is a great, isn't is a great tool that we can utilize to get them to, higher levels of intensity closer to the demands of sport to tell us are both limbs executing as they as we want them to and then specifically which phase of the jump may still be limited or constrained and then when then that can guide our training stimulus to specifically to specifically attack that specific specific phase of the jump or that specific constraint that might be holding them back to be a little more selective in our process and then validate whether our training has actually been effective or not. So we need to be carrying, comparing that objective data from force plates with our qualitative data of what's the actual strategy they're using for jump. Are they shifting? Are they landing stiff on the one leg? Are they slingshotting out um, from one side to the other to see how those numbers match what we're seeing and then how that might affect their strategy on the court and again, like we said, how that might affect our decision making for what we're including, what we're excluding in their training at, at that time um, to put them in the best position to to adapt, to lift those constraints and, and, and get closer to a position where they can they can execute what they need to. So um, 
when it comes to like a uh, ACL injury, do you, um, do you think like is there like chances for us to like uh for practitioner like me like coaches or like uh uh therapists before they get injured how exactly can we like like you mentioned the strength of the acl is like probably a weaker than pcl so how exactly can we strengthen the acl before you get in injured yeah so that's the thing is it's it's not necessarily about strengthening the, the ligament it's about fortifying the structures around it and then exposing the individual to the demands of sport so that they have seen those situations and that they have the robustness to, to handle um, some of those, I guess, unexpected and unexpected um, patterns. It's giving that, you know, that supercomputer, like I said, the inputs to better understand the timing and coordination needed um, for, for these, for these patterns. Right. Um, it's, it, it, it's gradually building somebody up to the point where we're not just throwing them in the water to where the tissues are prepared, the body's primed and, you know, timings in place to do these things. It's identifying maybe some common patterns that we see across individuals that might put them more at risk. So the inability to manage, you know, rotation of the femur, manage rotation of the tibia, manage the timing between those two, control downward forces, control the, you know, deceleration to reacceleration process. Um, and then looking at overall strategy and looking at the constraints that might be leading to that strategy to understand where we might need to be increasing options, where we might need to be teaching them how to coordinate options differently, where we might need to be able to give them a little bit more resilience to be able to exhibit things in a, in a different way or just withstand turbulent conditions in sport. So <laughs> really to put that all that simply, like, good strength conditioning is probably your best defense against an ACL injury because what are we doing in, with good strength conditioning is we're taking sport, we're willing down to its basic elements and we're attacking those variables to make them better when they put those pieces together back on, back on the, on the field, right? The best preparation oftentimes is, is, is the field stimulus, but they can't be doing that, you know, as much as we can, and we need to by supplementing weight room stuff. So, and we can't do that specifically to attack certain things because when you put them on the field to compete, they're going to find the strategy that's most efficient to them now. So if we take them in the weight room, that's a time we can attack deficits to change those strategies or to give them different options to do things differently by building different capacities in the structure and the neurology and the physiology to give them different, different ways to solve these problems. So I think that comes down to that. that's what we, we need to do. And we start looking at like, just the, like, I think it comes down to like looking outside of just professional sport, like looking at the changes you can make in a, in a youth athlete with, you know, six to 12 months of strength conditioning training and how you can, you can modify someone's strategy significantly by giving them strength and giving them the ability to, to manage the forces they're going to have in sport. That's the stuff I think makes it, makes a huge difference. And that's, where the strength conditioning coach plays a massive role in, in, in mitigating the risk of these injuries, in my opinion. Nice. Nice. So that's kind of all the questions I have for ACL injury for today. 
I know I put it in a hard position to ask a lot of like uh big loaded question. So I really appreciate you for answering this and really love our conversation. So for those like coaches or therapists are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? And where can they find the I know there's R2P Academy also had like courses on ACO MRI. Yes. So my colleague so Zach Baker has a course, the ACL Accelerator, which is a phenomenal resource for anyone who wants to dive more into to ACL material. Um, and then anyone in the States, we teach, um, well, we haven't taught internationally yet, but maybe you can bring us out to, out to Taiwan, Eric. But um, we teach a course called the the um, the Blueprints for Performance Rehab, which is a, a two-day in-person course where we go through a lot of these return-to-play principles. Um, but no, yeah, Eric, this was a lot of fun, man. You definitely, definitely know softball questions. A lot of, a lot of the hard, hard, uh, hard stuff, which is honestly the more fun stuff to talk about. So just tell your people to take it easy on me in the comments. All right. But, uh, no, yeah, check out our work. Like RGB Academy is, is good resources. Um, uh, just both on Instagram and our online courses. Um, so if you want to dive in more of that stuff, there's just some, some, really brilliant colleagues I work with and integrate on, on, on some of that material. Um, and then for me personally, uh, my Instagram is A-I-A-N-N-A-R-I-N-O-3 underscore D-P-T. So feel free to reach out, shoot me any questions, any disagreements, any issues you have with anything I said today, and we can we can banter about it. So now, Eric, I appreciate your time. Man. This was a lot of fun. Anytime I get the chance to kind of nerd out and talk on this stuff, I, I really appreciate it. So um, thanks for taking the time early in, early in your morning. No worries, man. Love it.